Hi, and welcome to Comchurch Talks. This is our sermon of the day. We pray that it will be a real blessing to you. I know you'll be encouraged, challenged, and uplifted by the talk that you're about to hear. I'm sure you've heard the Easter story many times. You know, and we're here tonight to mark the death of Jesus. But how easy is it to just read over it quickly? You know, I love that song, I praise the name. But how we get excited by verse 3, don't we? Because we know the resurrection's coming. We know it's coming. And that's the same, you know, we celebrate so freely tonight because we know Sunday is coming. But tonight, I just want to look at Friday. Because Good Friday is called good for a reason. It doesn't sound like it's good, but it really is. So let's just have a look. Because sometimes we can become really familiar, maybe over-familiar with the story. So over the centuries, though theories have popped up that maybe Jesus didn't die at all. The Quran was written in the 7th century, and that states that Jesus didn't die. In the 19th century, Karl Barth, Karl Ventuni, and others stated that Jesus merely fainted or was given a drug to appear like he was dead, also known as the swoon theory. In 1982, Holy Blood, Holy Grail added a twist that Pontius Pilate had been bribed to allow Jesus to be taken from the cross before he was dead. But even the authors confessed that they could not and still could not prove the accuracy of their conclusion. So tonight, let's cross-examine the evidence. So Lee Strobel, you may have heard of him, has written an amazing series of books, The Case for Christ, Case for Miracles, um, Uh, creation and other titles. But in the case for Christ, he's really looking into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he meets with all different experts in the field. The story, it's an an amazing book. So basically, he's a non-believer and his wife gets saved. And actually, he's pretty annoyed about it. He's not very happy with her newfound faith. And he goes, he's a journalist, and he goes on a quest basically to disprove it, to show her that she's being irrational and that it's complete completely ridiculous. So he flies all over the country to interview people, experts in their field, and it's an amazing book. But the one interview I'm looking at and interested in tonight is with Alexander Metherell, MD, PhD. You know it's worth listening to him when he's got that many letters after his name. So he's an expert in the subject of death by crucifixion and former consultant of the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And he relooks at all the evidence surrounding the death of Jesus. I'm going to start with the Garden of Gethsemane. So before he's arrested, before any of the the story that we know takes part, we're going right back to then. And we read in Matthew 26, Mark 32, and Luke 22 about Jesus praying. You know, we can often have this image that Jesus knew he was destined for the cross. He knew that's where he was heading. So he kind of just swanned into it like it was another day at the office. He kind of knew that's what he had to do. But actually, we read, when we read these passages, we see he was deeply distressed, deeply distressed to the point of death. He'd asked and he'd begged God, if this cup can be taken from me. But then he said, yeah, your will, but not mine. But it didn't mean, and often we can read through it so quickly, don't don't we? And we just think he just went, la, 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 off to the cross today. And that's not how it was at all. He was distressed. And they say he was so distressed that actually... He was sweating drops of blood. So methyl now gives us its modern explanation of hematidrosis. The sweating of blood is associated with a high degree of psychological stress. 
and this is him quoted, what happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of a chemical that breaks down the capillaries in the sweat glands. As a result, there's small amounts of bleeding into these glands and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. So already, right here, we see that Jesus is not in a healthy state. He is already suffering. His body is already feeling the effects of this mammoth task he has ahead of him. And again, we're going to look at how accurate these records are. Now, back then, the writers of this, it was Luke. Now, he was um, Paul's companion. He was thought to be a doctor. He marked that information down for a reason. They wouldn't have known hematidrosis back then, but they noticed it. It was noteworthy. And now we've got the the modern medical science to explain what was actually happening. So... After his arrest and sentencing, he was then submitted to flogging. 39 lashes. So we see here we have the whipping post. And it was actually called the cat and nine tails. I think this actually one has 10, but there we go. We'll let them off. And this one, bit of cotton, bit of fiber, but actually it would have been braided leather. It would have been braided together. And on the end, there'd have been big round metal balls that would have hit the skin Over and over again, it would have been hit. The person would have had to hold on, been chained to here, and it would have pounded like a steak. You know, you pound a steak, and it would have thinned the skin out enough so that then the bone, sharp bone fragments also, on the end of this, on the end of the cat and nine tails, would then rip through the thin skin. It would rip through right from the shoulders all the way down to the back of the legs. It often exposed muscle, even right down to the spine. It would just tear and beat the skin apart. Third century historian Eusebius said the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. You know, many people died at this stage. Many people didn't even make the cross. They didn't even get there. And at the very least, they'd have gone into massive shock. We read, don't we, that Jesus couldn't even carry the part of the cross that he was sent to carry. He collapsed because he'd already suffered massive blood loss. He was already extremely weak and in a very serious medical condition. Then come the nails. So he makes it to the place where they're going to fix him to the cross. Now, these aren't your average little wall nails for putting up a picture or something. They're these things. And these would have been driven. It says his hands, and at the time of writing, anywhere from there upwards would have been classed as hands. So it's more than likely it was placed just in the middle of the two bones there because actually had it gone through the the arm in the hands there, it would have just ripped straight through. So it would have gone through there. And they say, has anyone ever hit their funny bone? It's the worst pain, isn't it? And it's just one of those pains that just you don't know where to put yourself for a split second. It would have hit similar nerves by going into there through the wrist. It would have hit similar nerves, and that pain would have been constant. And then with every breath, trying to pull themselves up, it would have been constant. There was no more painful crucifixion than the cross. In fact, it was so painful, there wasn't even a word to describe the pain. It wasn't even there. So now we have the word excruciating excruciating pain, which means out of the cross. 
It came from the Latin word excruciere, which means pain like the crucifixion. It was the most painful torture and death ever invented. Invented by the Persians in 300 BC, but perfected by the Romans in 100 BC. These Romans knew what they were doing. So we go on. Crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The person gets so weary and so tired that they can't physically lift themselves up anymore to be able to breathe in or out. And so once they can no longer breathe, the body goes into a state of respiratory acidosis, a massive rise of acid in the blood. This causes an irregular heartbeat leading to cardiac arrest. Even before he died, the shock to his body would have caused a sustained rapid heartbeat that would have contributed to heart failure and resulting in a collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart. Now, why is that detail important? Because let's read John 19, 31 to 34. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Again, these weren't necessarily medical terminology that they would have had any knowledge of. They were just recorded in the eyewitness accounts that blood and water flowed. And again, we have that medical um, explanation of why that possibly happened. And then Jesus was buried. The testimony of Mark is one of the earliest and accurate accounts. But all four gospels named Joseph of Arimathea. He gave Jesus his tomb to be buried in. Now, he was a Jewish leader, a prominent member of the council, and, but he had not taken in, in the part of the, the decision to crucify Jesus. He hadn't been there at that me- meeting to crucify Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for permission for his body. And so Pilate sent the centurion to go and check that he died. So not only had the centurions and the soldiers that had been to break the other other, the thief and the other um, people being crucified, not only had they, one people had been, gotten to check that, they then, at the command of Pilate, had another person check that Jesus was dead. And he came back and confirmed that he was, and they were allowed to take his body. So again, why are they important? And are they even accurate? As I said, Mark was one of the earliest records, thought to have been written around 50 to 60 AD. He's thought to have written from the eyewitness account of Peter. This is so important as it was recorded so closely to the actual events. Many of us are taught in history about Alexander the Great and many other brilliant historical figures. And there are certain margins within, something has to be written within a certain amount of time for it to be historically accurate. Now, many of us will be taught all about Alexander the Great as absolute truth. That's absolutely what happened Yet his records were recorded 400 years after the event. Yet that is what you would learn in your A-levels. That is what you would learn even to degree level about Alexander the Great. So when we're talking about AD 50 or 60, that's within a lifetime. 
definitely within a generation. Even the most liberal pointings is AD 90, which is still when people were around and alive who could dis, who could, um, who could argue that actually that's not what happened at all. So it is recorded at a time where there were still people alive that could dispute what had been written. So the early historical evidence of the Bible is remarkable. But that's just one document, people say. Although it's made up of many, many documents and many, many fragments that have been discovered and found, apparently there's one bit of the New Testament hanging in Manchester University. I thought I'd love to go and see that one time. Because it's been there and it's absolutely verified as this is the piece of writing in the, before the first century, which is amazing. But then we have, outside of the Bible, we have Tacitus was a Roman historian. His writing, writings mention Christus or the Christ. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate. This confirmed outside of the Bible that Jesus lived and he died suffering an extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Josephus, a Jewish historian, also records the life and death of Jesus. And his work was thought to have been recorded around 93 AD. Again, this account is regarded as historically accurate. There was no reason for either of these writers to continue or confirm religious extremist lies. They had no need to confirm a lie or to confirm that even Jesus was there, he died at the hand. So again, we've got outside. No one with, because a lot of people can say, well, maybe it was just a a heart-written account. They wanted to believe that Jesus was still there. They wanted to believe that he was a hero. But these people outside of the Bible confirm what had happened. So we know he died, absolutely dead. His body and his spirit were separated. So then what? To the followers that hadn't abandoned him, this must have looked like a hefty defeat. They knew their lives could too be in danger. This powerful miracle worker was now defeated, humiliated by his death. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he showed no signs of power. All around, they could see weakness, death, and defeat. Why didn't God send the angels to save him? Why wasn't there a triumphant saving from the cross? Because he had to die. He had to die. Let's read Matthew 27.50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. I always think uh, a bit late, but never mind, they still exclaimed it. Surely he was the son of God. So the moment we read there, don't we, the moment that he gave up his spirit, some really super strange things began to happen. So they said they can pinpoint the time it happened because the sky grew black. There was a massive earthquake and the temple, uh, the veil, the curtain in the temple was split in two. And again, this was some big hefty 
curtain. It was massive. It was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. Now, again, very quickly, this is the place where only once a year, the most holiest of high priests was allowed to enter. And there's stories, isn't there, where they had to go in with a bell on because it was so holy that if they hadn't gone through all of the ceremonial washing, if they hadn't done everything right, they would just drop down dead and they'd hear the bell and they'd have to drag them out. So this was the only person that once a year could go into God's presence. That was it. No one else was allowed. But when Jesus died, this curtain was torn. It was broken. Amen. When he died... So this is before anything else. This is still on the Friday when he died. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. And then there's this bonkers or or unique event of tombs splitting open and dead bodies rising out of the ground. There's so much debate over where Jesus actually went after after he died. Some say hell, others she or Hades, the place of the dead. Hebrews mention he's in heaven. Jesus says himself to the thief, I'll see you in paradise. Maybe he went everywhere, who knows? But the point is, he broke death. He completely broke it. He broke the law of death. And I kind of like to think that he just caused absolute chaos. So much chaos. We know that death couldn't hold him, but maybe he broke death at that moment so catastrophically that other bodies just started escaping. Because <laughs> we know, don't we, from Helena's scripture last week, that there was no changing around. In the, it said you couldn't go from one side to the other. There was no moving. Yet all of a sudden, all these dead bodies are popping up everywhere. And again, if you were making something up, would you put something that bonkers in it? <laughs> I don't think I would, would you? So who knows, but what a mysterious event. That's going to be one of life mysteries that we're going to need to ask Jesus the other side, isn't it? What, what was all the dead body thing about? So remember, it looked like defeat. It looked hopeless. But even his death was super powerful. They just didn't know it then. So Colossians 2.13, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. How amazing is that? that all that stood against us was nailed to the cross. That's why the cross was powerful. It may have looked to even his closest friends and followers as defeat, as it was over, as Jesus had let them down. But even then, that nailing to the cross, he made a public, I love that scripture, it's one of my favourite. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amazing. 
There's so much we could look at about the power of the blood. That's a whole study in itself about the blood covenant, about why Jesus had to have his blood spilt and broken body as a sacrifice that covered us once and for all. Injury, swooning, stolen bodies, none of that would have fulfilled the requirements. So Jesus had and did die. So now we'll look at the communion table. Colossians 1, 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This was a massive turning point in history. Even before the resurrection, his death was a massive turning point in history. Before we know, the Jews had to offer blood sacrifice. They had to take the calves. They had to take the goats, the sheep, whatever. They had to take them and make atonement for their sin. They had to cover their sins by a blood sacrifice. But let's remember again that story in Luke where there was the other thief, the other person dying on the cross. And he turned to Jesus and he said, will you remember me in your kingdom? Now Jesus turned back to him and said, today you'll see me in paradise. Now this guy didn't, he couldn't hop off the cross and go and make atonement for his sin, could he? It was too late. He was stuffed. He couldn't go and quickly get the priest to make a sacrifice for him, to shed the blood that was required by Jewish law to atone for his sins. But what did he have? (laughs) The word of Jesus. That's all it took. All it took was... Jesus, I want to be with you. I I believe that you are the ruler of this kingdom. There are some important things in there. But all he did was speak. All he did was say, and Jesus confirmed, you will be with me tomorrow, today in paradise. That was the turning point. Because church, tonight we know that Jesus has died once and for all, for all of our sins. And it's so easy. We heard last week so amazingly, the truth that there's heaven and there's hell and that a loving God doesn't want to see any person go to hell. So he sent his son. That's why we celebrate today. He made it so easy that none should perish because that's his will, that none should perish. And all we have to do is choose. There were two men beside him. One continued to mock. One turned to him and said, remember me in your kingdom. And it was only him that Jesus said, I'll see you. I'll see you later in paradise. That's all we have to do. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I need a saviour. 
I need a saviour. And that's why we take the communion table and we remember the body broken for us. And we remember the blood spilt for us. And I want to invite you tonight, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard even a bit of the Easter story. And I want to tell you that, do you know what? God does love you. He loves you so much. He never wants to see you go to hell when you die. He doesn't. But we also read and we know in Luke, it says the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's what we believe in this church. There is only one way to the Father, God, and that is through Jesus Christ because he had to die so our sins could be forgiven. Thanks for listening to Com Church Talks. We'd love to hear from you and you're welcome to any of our Sunday services or midweek comms. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.comchurch.org.uk or find us on Facebook. God bless.